Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on this Lord's Day, and thank you for the good word that we heard this morning about our union in you because of the hope of the gospel, and thank you for the significant way the Reformation played in reminding your church of that central truth. And I pray for Gil and for me as we sort of enter into these next three weeks that you'll bless our time together and uh, open our minds and our hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Come on in. There's room. Um, okay, so the, the thought process behind this class that Gil and I are co-teaching um, is, has a dual focus. Number one, it's a standalone class. Uh, we'll see if that actually happens. But it's meant to be a sort of standalone class for just people who are generally interested in the Reformation. Next year marks the 500th anniversary of the tacking of the, or the nailing of the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg a church, so you know we're we're in a pretty um, important historical time, um, and but there's the other side of this course, and that is to give a, a, a slight introduction to some of the movements that we're going to be making as a group that's going to Germany this summer for a Reformation tour. Um, you know, so I mean, if that's not you, is it too late to sign up? Yep. If it's not you and you want it to be you, well, this could be your lucky day. Gil's giving out free passes afterward. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, for, so just out of, out of curiosity for the folks who are here, who's going with us to Germany this summer? One, two, three, four. And this. So is there, there's not a... T- Ron, you're not going? No, okay. There are at least four people. The Hornsby's and the... The dates are July the 20th, 20th through 30th. 20th through 30th. <laughs> do, we, do we need to give you a moment? <laughs> but we'd love to have you. Um, so let me, I'll just give you a sense of, I, I want to do a few things this morning. Um, and Gil, you keep me honest on time. Uh, I wanted to give an overview of, of what we're doing on the trip. Just for those of you who aren't going, you might, be a, might, might find it of interest because, as I understand it, this is a, this is a test case for the Advent, uh, this particular trip, to possibly um, pursue other opportunities for these kinds of trips in the future, maybe in other places like England or Scotland, that kind of thing. Um, so what we're doing is we're flying into Berlin um, we're going to spend the day in Berlin, and then from there, we will move um, to really the heart of the Luther side of, of the tour. And why, why this is worth saying is because we'll, we'll talk a lot about this morning. Luther did some traveling in his life, right? We're talking late, uh, late thir- uh, 14th century. I'm sorry, late 13th century. I'm getting this all wrong. Late 14th century, 15th, and then in the 16th century. Now, Luther did travel some, um, but he, he lived most of his life in a pretty localized area. And what I guess we might consider in the north uh, eastern quadrant of Germany. Um, so when we move from Berlin, we'll go down to Wittenberg, and that will spend a day in Wittenberg, which is where Luther spent the majority of his teaching life and, uh, and ministry life. And then we will, from there, move to the city of Weimar, um, and we'll stay in Weimar for three nights, I believe. Is that right, Gil? Three nights in Weimar. We should, it would be night, I should have put a, pulled a map up. We'll go to Weimar for three nights, and that will be our, our base 
to do uh, day trips out into the area surrounding that are central uh, Luther stops. Um, and one of these towns will be significant to our conversation this morning about Luther. Um, we will make our way into Eisleben, um, which is not far from Weimar at all. And in Eisleben, that's where Luther was, was born. Um, and it's also where Luther died. Uh, so we'll go to Eisleben for a day. We will um, spend time in the city of Eisenach, um, which is where Luther, and I'll mention Eisenach this morning in the conversation, Luther went to Eisenach as a young boy um, for Latin school. It was a modest school, but he went there for Latin school, as we'll mention in a few minutes. His father had a vision for Luther um, to become a, uh, a lawyer, and so he went to Latin school early. Um, there in the city of Eisenach. Eisenach also is the place where the Wartburg Castle is located. Um, and is that the Wartburg Castle? Does that ring a bell for anybody? Uh, Wartburg. Wagner. What's that? Wagner. The Wagner. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the Wartburg Castle is set up on a hill there in Eisenach. And um, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, my wife and I visited this several years ago. Um, you know, having to sort of hike up, you know, Luther had a foul mouth. I mean, I, I, you do know that, right? Um, uh, really foul mouth. And we were hiking up, and it's sort of kind of a hard hike up, and I looked at my wife, and I said, I, I imagine Luther let a profanity loose right here. At this <laughs> um, and then you make your way up, and that's where Luther was holed up, um, being protected by Frederick the Wise um, for, I don't know how long it was. Ten months. Ten months. But the, he, uh, there in his chamber, translated the Greek New Testament um, into German in sort of a miraculously short period of time. Um, was it two months that he did that or something? Some sort of miraculous. I mean, he, he was quite an intellect. So we'll, we'll go to the Wartburg Castle there in Eisenach. Eisenach is also an interesting place um, because that's the home of J.S. Bach as well, Johann Sebastian Bach. And the Bach house, his birth house, along with all kinds of fascinating um, museum-type uh, 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 displays about Bach's life, and, and they, do, they do presentations of the musical instruments that were uh, used during that time. I rem when my wife and I were there, I remember some poor chap gets picked out from the audience to go and pull the, the air organ so that they can do it while somebody's playing. And, um, so we'll go to the, to the Bach house as well. I should say this about Bach. Um, you know, I, I have a, a, very, a large interest in, in Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, who, by the way, quoted Martin Luther more than any other theologian. It's worth remembering. Um, but Karl Barth had, um, a, he, he was firmly against any naturalized account of our understanding of God. In other words, we can't build our understanding of God by looking at the natural world and then building some sort of edifice upon that so that we can know, okay, this is who God is. He was very opposed to that. But he did have a, an, an exposed flank um, in his uh, non-natural theology view, and that is um, Mozart. I mean, uh, there were two pictures that hung in, uh, in Barth's office. One was of John Calvin and the other was, I mean, portraits. One was of Calvin and one was of Mozart. He listened to Mozart every morning, and so he did think that that was maybe one place where, where God should maybe showed up in the natural order in a way. But he has a famous line. He says, when the angels are by themselves, they listen to Mozart. Um, but when they're with God, they play Bach. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, we'll, we'll go to the, to the Bach house there in, um, in Eisenach. And then we'll also go to the city of Erfurt, um, which will be our major point of discussion this morning as we kind of uh, um, move into to Luther's life. Um, Erfurt is where the Augustinian Monastery is, where Luther um, became a member, 
It's also where he started his university training as a lawyer, then he became a monk, and then he became a university doctor lecturing in theology, all there in Erfurt. Um, and that really is the heart of our trip. That's the first four, uh, four or five days, I think, of our trip right there. Um, so we'll be heavily fronted on the Luther side of things. Then from there, we'll take a bus ride and we'll go down to Coburg, which I think we'll talk about Coburg possibly next week. Um, we'll go down to Coburg, um, which is a fortress, again, where, where, where Luther um, stayed and wrote some famous sermons. And then we may also stop in Torgau, which is where Luther's wife, Katharina von Buren, uh, lived uh, and was born. And then from there, we'll kind of cross over into the heart of Germany, into the Rhineland, and down into the southwest part of Germany in Heidelberg, Beautiful. Anybody been to Heidelberg before? It's just gorgeous. It's got the Neckar River going through and the the uh, the, um, uh, the Schloss, the Hulk Schloss, uh, the the high high uh, castle up on the mountains. It's a lovely city. There are aspects of the Reformation tour that are important because of Heidelberg, namely the Heidelberg Disputation. We'll talk about the Heidelberg Catechism there as well. Um, Luther also visited the Augustinian Monastery in Heidelberg to present his new found um, doctrines that he was presenting that were at the seedbed of the Reformation. So well, there's some stuff there, but Heidelberg is just a cool place to go um, as well. And then from there, we'll do fun aspects of the trip on the back end, mainly ending in Bavaria, which is still Roman Catholic country, so it's not, not all of that sort of tied to the Reformation, but we'll, we'll end our trip there. Okay, so that's a big overview of what this trip is doing this summer. I think it'll be a good time, um, you know, Lord, Lord willing it will be. I made a joke with Andrew and Gil that we're also going to be preparing some lectures on the, on the theological significance of German beer, um, <laughs> but uh, that, I still have to work on that lecture a little bit. Okay. Um, I wanted to do a few things today, um, and I, I realize our time is moving. I wanted to set a bit of a context um, intellectually and religiously, theologically, for what was going on that gave rise to the Reformation. And then I want to talk a little bit about Luther's life. And some of this for you will be old hat, um, but uh, we'll hopefully get some sort of context here. So two things I want to talk about as far as context. Number one is um, the rise of nominalism in the 13th and the 14th century. Now, this could get very dangerous. You can't leave the room, by the way. Um, but this could get boring, so, so brace yourself. Um, but nominalism arose in the 14th and 15th century in response um, to Aristotelian thought that had dominated the scholastic model of the medieval period. Now, I'm going to try to unpack this a little bit because it's very important, I think, for understanding and situating Luther in his particular context. Why am I doing this? Because no ideas um, are born out of a vacuum. Just not. I mean, Luther is a seminal figure. He's a first-tier thinker. He's not a second-tier thinker. He's a first-tier thinker. Um, but his ideas as well were not born out of a vacuum. There's a real danger whenever we construct any intellectual or theological history of what historians call the danger of personification. And what they mean by that is by addressing history through the big figures. In other words, I'm going to go all the way through the Western intellectual tradition, and this is how it's going to go. We're going to go Kant, Hegel... Schopenhauer, early 20th century, Wittgenstein, something like that. And what the problem with that is, is it loses the dynamic of the social and the larger um, issues that were going on that were rising, that were giving rise to the effects of, of particular causes that can get lost when we only focus on one sole figure. And nominalism is central. Why? Because already in the 14th century, 
and then it gra- gra- grabbed hold of the university system in Europe in the, in the uh, 15th century, um, there was a, a leaning against the rise of an Aristotelian model. And what was the Aristotelian model at its basic core? It was this, that whenever you engage things around us, right, so for example, and this is very rudimentary and basic, so forgive me, but whenever you engage a person um, or a chair um, or a tree, there's some universal concept behind that, some form behind that that holds all of these different chairs together so that we can talk about all the various kinds of chairs. Look in this room. Here's a chair. That's a chair. That's a chair. They're all rather different. But there is some kind of universal idea of chairness that holds all of this together. That, and, and what that allowed was a very rational account of the faith that could through a model of a really highly tuned and fine mind, Thomas Aquinas is a central figure in this, could then by a rational account give some ordered understanding that what we see in nature, how we see the world around us, all emanates from the mind of God in these universal forms, and we can build a kind of construct of God from the bottom up because we see these forms that then give us rise to the universals that all emanate from the life of God. So it was a very rational account. It was very neat and tidy, and it had an an enormous impact on shaping the medieval and the scholastic mind. Nominalists come along. What are some of the names you might associate with nominalism? Um, Duns Scotus, the, the biggie William of Ockham, the one who had a pretty big influence on Luther, Gabriel Beale. These are figures that came along, and they said, no, the the particular, the chair itself, the name, that's where we get the term nominalism, nama, the name itself, the particular thing, that is where the universal is to be found. Never in some kind of abstract form behind that that emanates from the life of God. So there was a resistance to this Aristotelian notion that we can construct the world on the basis of these forms, these universals that flow from, from the mind of God. That was, that was leaned heavily against. And what's significant here? There's no reality behind the particular. There's no reality behind the name itself. And reason, therefore, is limited by this construct because we cannot organize all the particulars according to a universal or a reality that is something lost or, or something uh, located in, in, um, in the noumenal uh, world. And so why is this, what are the implications of this? The implications are significant. Big implications for Eucharist theology, right? Because for, for in Eucharist theology, that's how the whole notion of transubstantiation got its hold within the medieval mindset was you had accidents like bread and wine that flowed from a universal, that is, Jesus' body and blood, and that's how you can have an organic relationship between these things. And the nominalists were already coming along in the 14th century and saying, that entire way of thinking isn't going to work. It's not, it's not, it's not, um, it's not uh, sustainable. Heiko Obermann says this about uh, nominalism. All philosophical speculation about the world must be tested by experience or reality-based reason despite what authorities say. Now, I want to say that again because this is central for Luther. All philosophical speculation about the world must be tested by experience or reality-based reason despite what authorities might say. So, you begin to see the seeds sown in the centuries before Luther comes onto the scene 
that raises questions or at least creates a kind of atmosphere in a university setting and in a churchly setting where the presumptive authorities of the past can be called into question by new engagement with ideas or new engagement with an experiential reality or a different construct of understanding how the world operates according to different organizing principles and they can call into question authorities that have said uh, something other. All right? Now, there are some problems with nominalism. It did have a more Pelagian view of salvation. That is, there was a, and this is Gabriel Beale's term, there was a contract that was made between humanity and between God. And if you hear terms like synergism, have you heard this as a negative term about salvation? God does some work, we do some work, and when those works come together, then you have a salvific outcome. Uh, that not, nominalists sort of presented that view as well and had, did not have what we might consider to be a classically Augustinian view of salvation by grace uh, through faith alone. So there were some dangers as well, and we'll see how Luther uh, begins to respond. Now, one more thing about nominalism before we move on. The emphasis in nominalism, because now there's no longer a construct that can move from the particular world into the universal world where God's mind can be found, that particular construct can no longer be um, assumed. So what was replaced? What replaced that idea? An omnipotent and all-powerful God that could do whatever he wanted to do whenever he wanted to do it. Now, th this is important because this created an enormous amount of pastoral angst for people in the church. In other words, there was no promise that one could hold on to, even when it comes to the gospel, per se. There wasn't a promise that one could hold on to that God would make good on something. Why? Because God was free to do whatever God wanted to do in an omnipotent way, and you cannot anticipate what he might do, even if it means the eternal fate of your own soul. That, that was a significant pastoral outcome. And um, by the way, I meant, meant to mention this. I brought two books today to kind of highlight, especially you Tory people that are going with us. This one by Heiko Obermann. Um, his, his particular engagement with these issues is first-rate, a Luther between, man between uh, God and, and, and the devil. All right, so I want to say that about nominalism. Second thing. Humanism, okay, humanism. Late uh, 14th century, this arises, begins in Italy. Um, humanism is often referred to as the new learning, or maybe in terms that we're familiar with, the Renaissance, right? And humanism was aided by the technology of printing and the discovery of new texts. There was a, the technical term is a Philhellenic spirit that was going on. People grew deeply um, interested in uh, the literature from the Greco-Roman period. So there was a rise in the study of Homer and the study of Virgil and Cicero and the great or orators of, um, of the Greco-Roman period, Quintilian as well. And these were figures that were studied. And because these texts were discovered anew, and because of the aid of the technology of printing, there was an emphasis in humanism, and I think many of you already know this, but there was an emphasis that was referred to as ad fontes, back to the sources. So going back to the original sources, going back to original texts, a close reading of original texts with all the lexical aids that were given, especially Greek, but this trickled over into also Latin and especially even Hebrew, had a significant impact on the culture of learning during the period of Luther. 
a going back to the text, a close reading of text. Why? Because even in the close reading of text, they could correct errors that were going on in the current moment. One of the key figures that we identify with the rise of, of humanism and its impact on the church is a man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. Erasmus was a very learned man. Um, I encourage you, I mean, it's a short read. It's a funny read. Uh, he writes this little tractate, this little uh, piece called In Praise of Folly. Right? You know, you know this, right? And, uh, and what, is, what does he do? He basically, um, and he's a fully-fledged Roman Catholic, right? But he basically says the scholastic model, this Aristotelian model, um, this, these questions about how many angels can dance on the pin of a head, it's foolishness. And, and basically what in Praise of Folly is, is Erasmus going to the Wizard of Oz and pulling back the curtain and saying, this, this is what's going on here, and it's rather silly. Why? Because there's been a loss of an ability to read texts. Everything is tradition. Everything is the medieval model. And Erasmus arises on the scene and he says, no, we need to go back to original texts and read them again and go back uh, to the sources. So this is a significant context. Now, why, why do I say these things are important? Nominalism and humanism. Because, and again, this is very reductionistic. I'm, I'm embarrassed to frame it this way because this needs to be nuance on top of nuance. But I, I think you understand uh, the, the limitations of our structure. But two, two important matters for context. Number one, Nominalism had already called into question the dominance of the Aristotelian model that had governed the medieval scholastic model for years. So there was already a challenge. And, and in fact, Obermann says in time, though he will challenge it in due course as well, Luther becomes a full-fledged nominalist in the sense of embodying and embracing this rejection of the scholastic model a recognition of its, of its limitations, a calling into a question the presumptive authority of the medieval model and willing to go to the drawing board and say, we need to rethink this thing from the standpoint of current experience. And this is where the second part of humanism comes into play and the close reading of texts. What texts? The Bible, right? So the Bible is the text by which, for Luther, everything is going to be adjudicated and judged when it comes to ecclesiastical matters, when it comes to theology. And he's willing to come with fresh eyes and open eyes to read things again, to go back to the sources, because the intellectual foment of the day in the German university system that gave birth to a Luther was already raising questions like that as well. I, mean, I think that's important to see from a contextual standpoint that Luther had received some instincts from his own training that gave him some critical tools to engage the tradition that in time he's going to completely um, overturn. And he's going to overturn it in a way that, if I can borrow from Thomas Kuhn, that we would call a realistic paradigm shift. All right? How are we doing on time? Not good. Second part. So what about Luther? Well, here's a Goodyear Blimp view. 1483, Luther was born in Eisleben. His father, Hans Luther, directed his son toward law. Um, early, he went to Latin school in the city of Eisenach. He went to Latin school in 1458 to 1500. But Luther had a religious turn, all right, a significant religious turn that led him away from law and into the study of theology and into the study of religion. This is an important date for us all. In 1501, Martin Luther enrolls at Erfurt. Do we have any Erfurt pictures? That's the cathedral in Erfurt. 
By the way, one of my favorite cities in Germany. My, we were completely taken with Erfurt. Um, a river goes right through the heart of the city, um, and you have to go, go through a series of bridges. It's, it's, a, it's a lovely town, and the cathedral sits up at the top of, um, of, the, of Erfurt, looking down into to what the Germans call the inner Stadt, the, the inner city. Um, so we'll, we'll go to this. I'll leave that up there. We'll, we'll come back to that because it's important. So he enrolls at Erfurt in 1501 to study law. But in 1505, he has a momentous religious conversion or moment. Conversion is probably not the right term in the sense of, not necessarily conversion of regeneration, but a conversion in the sense of vocational choice. He's caught in a thunderstorm. You know this? July the 2nd, 1505, somewhere near Stottenheim, which is outside of Erfurt. He gets caught in a thunderstorm, a lightning storm. And he makes a vow to St. Anne, the mother of Mary, that he would become a monk if he was saved from this storm. God help my children to never make vows like that. All right. But he does it. So in 1505, he makes this vow, and when the storm was over, he keeps his vow, and he moves down the road from the university to the Augustinian monastery, which is in the same town of Erfurt. Now, you can't see it from the perspective here, but if you were to take the road right down to the heart of town from where this cathedral is, a good mile and a half walk or so, you'll find the Augustinian monastery that Luther knocked on the door and he became a monk. So he enters the Augustinian monastery in 1505. And I think it's providential. I, I, and I probably need to read more on this because this is an instinct and I don't, I'm not, so um, take this with a grain of salt. But I just have to wonder if there was a Dominican monastery in town or a Franciscan monastery, if he might have gone there. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, th th there was an Augustinian monastery in town. And that's the monastery where he went to become a monk, and there's something profoundly providential about that. Because again, Augustine, the great church father of the late 5th and into the 6th century, Augustine had a very high view of grace and a very low view of, of humanity's ability to secure that grace. We could not do that. And so no, I mean, Augustine was the first one to stand against Pelagians, those who thought that there was a synergistic account of how humanity re is redeemed. Augustine said no to both Pelagianism and even a semi-Pelagian view that saw at least a little human achievement involved in the securing of salvation. Augustine said, grace is given freely in accord with God's mercy directed toward humanity. And this is the monastery where, August where um, Luther goes. He goes to an Augustinian uh, monastery. Um, he uh, came to despise Gabriel Beale, this um, uh, nominalist theologian, his notion of a contract between God and humanity during his time here. Augustine had sunk deeply into his bones. Now, I want to say one thing here about um, Luther's time, and I realize that we're, we're running out. But I wanted to read you a couple of things about during this period, because I'm going to jump from 1505 to 1513, but in between that period, um, Luther uh, lived in an enormous amount of angst as a monk. Enormous amount of angst. Uh, th this is a quote from Luther. I was a good monk and kept my order so strictly that if ever a monk could go to heaven through monkery, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this, for if it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death with vigils and prayers and readings and other works. My conscience would never give me certainty, but I would always 
doubt. And, and I always said, you did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. Any, any of you in here, recovering fundamentalists like I am, come from a sort of Baptist fundamentalist background, I know this feeling. You know, you're not willing to admit it, are you? Um, I, I know this feeling here. I said a sinner's prayer, but did I really mean it? Did I say it the right way? Was I sincere enough? I mean, these kinds of deep struggles that Luther was having because he was looking for assurance. Uh, here's another quote from Luther during this time. Then God appeared horrifyingly angry, and with him the whole creation. There could be no flight, no consolation, neither within nor without. Everything is accusation, says Luther. A fellow monk said to Luther, My son, God is not angry with you, but you are angry with God. Well, Luther had a significant figure in his life, a fellow by the name of Johannes von Staupitz. And Staupitz, uh, I mean, again, these books are worth reading on this. Staupitz had a significant role as a spiritual director in Luther's life. I mean, Luther would bring these confessions of sin to Staupitz, and Staupitz would say things like, Hey, listen, when you have something really good to tell me, bring it. Otherwise, you know, keep some of these things to yourself. Um, and Staupitz led Luther, I think, in a properly Augustinian view of grace. And this is what uh, Luther later said in life about Staupitz. If I didn't pray Staupitz, I should be a damned, ungrateful, oh, I forgot about this quote, actually. Sorry, y'all. Papistical ass. For he was my very first father in this teaching, and he bore me in Christ. So Luther recognized the significance of Staupitz in this period between 1505 and 1513. Now, by the time we get to 1513, Luther is lecturing. He's a doctor. He's earned his doctorate in theology. His first theology lectures are done in the nave of that building right there at the cathedral. We will see where Luther did his theological lectures. And he begins his life of lecturing on the Psalms. And then he moves in 1515 to lecturing on Romans. And of course you all know that when he begins to lecture on Romans, and he comes to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, this is when the lights come on for Luther. The righteousness of God is no longer viewed as a juridical means by which God determines whether we are good or bad. Rather, the righteousness of God is God's own saving activity on the part of people, something that he gives in his kindness. So the gospel comes in this particular period. And it's important to know all of this is happening during the time when Luther is in the city of, of Erfurt. And it's all in the context, and I would love to talk about this more, all in the context of his Bible teaching. All right? In 1511, he moves to Wittenberg. And I was going to go into the Wittenberg stuff, but I'm going to stop. All right? So we'll, we'll do Wittenberg. And, um, and I'll just kind of give you a sense of what's happening Luther was still very much a son of the Roman Catholic Church. Right? He wasn't in, interested at all in becoming something other than that. But he was very interested in seeing reform within, and that's another thing we're saying. Reform movements within the life of, of the Roman Catholic Church was, was no novelty in the 16th century. It wasn't. I mean, you had Franciscans, you had the mendicant orders, you have all kinds of interesting dynamics that have gone on. You have the Lollards in England with, with John Wycliffe. You had the Hussites as well. You had all kinds of reform movements basically calling into question papal abuse, the abuse of the, of the Pope and the abuse of church. And Pope Leo X was rebuilding 
St. Peter's Basilica, and, in a, and I think about, if you've been to the Vatican, you, you've seen the, the outcome of this. And they used, um, indulgences were the means by which financial capital was, was, was uh, garnered to rebuild uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And what were these indulgences? Well, you know, it's a, you pay a little money and, and you can secure a piece of paper. And when we go to Wittenberg, we will see indulgences. They actually have um, copies of, of, of official indulgences from the 15th century, 16th century. And you can buy these. You can get a family member out of purgatory earlier. You can maybe secure yourself a little less time in purgatory. And, um, you know, the famous line that Tet John Tetzel said when he, and he was the evangelist for this, going around raising money for St. Peter's Basilica. When the coins hit the coffers, the souls flee to heaven, kind of thing. And, uh, and, and Luther saw this as an enormous abuse and made a trip from Wittenberg down to Rome. When he went to Rome, um, it was not a happy trip. He saw the abuses, clerical abuses, the abuses of, of, um, of the papal see and came back highly disturbed. And that's what led to the tacking of the 95 Thesis on the door of the Wittenberg Schlosskirche. Why did he tack these theses there? Not because he was wanting to start the Protestant movement. And by the way, this is a distinction in the second book I want to commend to you all by Scott Hendricks. And this is hotter off the press. Um, Martin Luther, visionary reformer, both Gil and I are reading this, this book in preparation for our trip. Um, he makes it a division between Luther's life pre-1522 and after. Because pre-1522, this we're talking about the tacking up of the thesis, Luther's thinking through the implications of his own theological views. But once he's excommunicated, then 1522 and after that, now he's the leader of an ecclesiastical movement. And we see a different kind of Luther on the scene, pastoral leader, doctor of the church, uh, founder of really um, Protestant, of Protestant Christianity. Um, so those are distinctions that need to be made. But why would he tack a thesis on the wall of the Wittenberg Schlosskirche, of, of, the, of the big church there in town. Because what he was asking for was for a debate. That's why this was tacked up in public. Let's have a debate about this. Let's go into the university halls. And, and this was the method of discourse during the day. Let's debate these ideas and see really who's on the side of the truth here. And that's what eventually led um, to uh, Martin Luther's uh, excommunication from the life of the church. Right? Um, did you want to do an art, art thing? or? Just a Q&A. You want to do some Q&A with that? I, I threw a lot of spaghetti against the wall, and I'm not sure what will stick. Um, but do you, you want to fire some questions? or Talked about nominalism a little bit. Talked about the rise of humanism and how those two shaped contextually Luther's own burgeoning intellectual interests. Victor? That movie, Luther, do you, is that one to watch? Is it worthwhile? I haven't seen it in years. Yeah, I think so. Um, came out a few years ago with Joseph Fiennes, that I say his name, and it's historically accurate. Um, and it was uh, produced in conjunction with the uh, Missouri Synod Lutherans, I think. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's pretty good. Opens with the thunderstorm scene and then moves into his first mass and the trembling and all that and the diet of worms where he, he please, you know, God help me, I could do no other, here I stand, amen. All that's done probably pretty accurately in conjunction with his mother's. So. Absolutely, think it's highly recommended. And I think they do the filming on the actual <coughs> sites. I mean, I know like the Augustinian monasteries, actually the monastery will go I to. Right. So that's worth seeing as well because it'll give you a sort of contextual sense of, of where, where we'll go. I'll throw in two pieces of sort of human side of Luther in this part of its history. Right up there at the thunderstorm in 1505 where he had the conversion. Right. You know, which is believable enough. If you've ever been, I remember one time I was in a boat fishing. <coughs> And uh, all I had was a trolling motor, and, I, and the wind came up, 
and, and this little motor was so weak against the wind, I would go full blast and I was going the wrong way because I couldn't get through it and then the lightning started happening and I was out in the middle, I was, I was scared and I was like, okay, this might be some of the fear that Luther had. Is that when you became a youth director? That's when I became a youth director. <laughs> <laughs> right before that, about eight months before, Luther lost two brothers to the plague in Mansfield. And then only a few months before that, he lost a good friend to an accident that was kind of his roommate in college, basically. And so death was everywhere. Mm. And they were just hanging. That's what Obermann really pulls out well. I mean, life was just on such a threat. The threat of the plague, especially, mm. uh, was, was omnipresent, literally. And so it's just always mm. right there. That when he's just groping in the mud, St. Anne helped me, which was this scene right here is... We'll see this as well. This is the baptismal font where he was baptized one day old because you got him out as soon as you could and get him into the Lord. I mean, you did not wait even to clean him up sometimes to get him baptized because that secured their salvation. The, the altar here is to St. Anne, the maternal uh, grandmother of Jesus, um, which was also the patron saint of miners. And his father was sort of a franchise owner is what we call it now. It's in mines. He was kind of upper middle class. Uh, and all that came out where when, when Luther said, I'm going to be a monk, just ripped his pension out. You know, all of, all of Hans Luther's uh, hopes and dreams were now suddenly shattered. Because it's like, well, great, we're going to die uh, alone. Because the only way that we're going to be cared for is if our son, the only remaining son, you know, got to be a lawyer, mm. which was the, the way out. So all that's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, very much, I'm totally stoked to see all this. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry. Didn't Luther and Erasmus later on lock horns, and, and what was the issue between the two of them? They did. I mean, that, that comes later. Um, oh, well. You want to speak to that, Gil? Okay. Well, the fruit from In Praise of Folly, um, right after that, he wrote a small, and they started going back and forth, and Henry VIII in England, for Anglicans got involved and all that. Rasmus finally said he kept trying to not engage Luther directly, uh, but he said, we're going to have to do this. And he wrote a book called On the Freedom of the Will, and then Luther wrote the retort on the bondage of the will in 1525, and, and that's, a, that's the one that he survived and built so much uh, on top of. So yeah, they did not go well. Erasmus never, although he was a great friend of the Protestant Reformation, in as much as he was a humanist, and, and, and everybody loved his New Testament. He translated the New Testament for the first time in, in, into the Greek, uh, but he always stayed a royal churchman. He stayed in the church. He never got into the Reformation, and then kind of just died, kind of bouncing around as a hired gun at different universities, um, uh, including Cambridge. So, so yeah, he and Luther finally drew the line in the sand and never reconciled. They, they stayed against one another. Go ahead, Kenny. Uh, how was how Aquinas viewed in, in Augustinian uh, uh, monasteries? Uh, favorably? Or? Um, I think it would depend. I mean, there was a figure that had arisen named Cogiton, uh, who was basically um, had reproduced a lot of Aquinas' thought. And he and Luther kind of went to loggerheads as well um, at a certain point. So I don't know if there's a sort of hard and fast answer to how uh, sort of Augustinian monasteries would. I mean, I. My sense is, you know, they weren't Dominicans, um, and if you were a Dominican, you'd obviously have a, a deep tie to Aquinas and a, and a sort of natural uh, link to him. Um, but again, you know, Aquinas viewed himself in 
an Augustinian stream. I mean, again, Aquinas is not the, the, the father that he engages more than anyone else is Augustine. So I would think that there would be many within the Augustinian monasteries that would see a natural link between Aquinas and Augustine or, as, as, or Aquinas as the true Augustinian heir, especially on issues of, of, of salvation and even um, the relation of nature and grace. In, in the medieval period, but there was such a foment in university life that I have to imagine that there were differences of opinion even on the ground there. It was a hot time intellectually, I think. Yeah. It, I've read where uh, the Reformation and the Great Schism were all kind of in the general same time time frame and kind of created a perfect storm with regard to Henry VIII and marriage annulment, those things uh, with Catholicism. But perhaps Luther and Calvin had some agreements and some disagreements. Maybe they agreed on more things than they didn't, than they disagreed on. But, and that may be a topic for a completely different class. But what, 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 uh, what would you speak to? That's between Calvin and Luther. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, I've, I heard uh, Fitz Allison give a series of lectures at um, at Beeson Divinity School on Cranmer, and uh, I'll never forget his turn of phrases. Henry VIII is God's gift to Episcopalians who forget Thomas Cranmer. Um, <laughs> you know, because he's he's uh, I mean, he's he's not a good guy. Um, so the relationship between all of that and so the, the reality of, the, of political facts on the ground as that meets relig religious instincts. So Henry VIII was Roman Catholic and Pelagian in his views, I mean, to the end. I mean, I, so I'm, I don't see him as, a, as that kind of figure. Now, Luther and Calvin, um, you know, it needs to be said that Luther is the first tier thinker that, has sh that shaped Reformation thought. And it mattered a great deal. Calvin really is a second generation reformer. Okay. Um, and it meant a lot to Calvin to have Luther's, um, uh, Luther's approval. And as a matter of fact, when he heard that Luther approved something that he had written, it was a pretty big feather in Calvin's cap. Now, they did have significant differences on, on the Eucharist. And, you know, I guess I've swallowed enough of the ecumenical or maybe postmodern pill to, and, and of course, knowing what happens later with the Thirty Years' War and how you, you sort of the Holy Roman Empire in Central Europe gets torn apart, over these issues, I wish people could have come together. The lines got drawn in the sand. There was um, the polemical side of, of, of Protestant life could be really intense, and that became tied to politics and regional ideas as well. And I think some of that's unfortunate in hindsight. I wish people could have come together a little bit more clearly. Um, and, and, our, and some would say our prayer book is a reflection of those two things coming together. Um, you even heard it today, right? I mean, when we go into the Eucharist, our opening prayers that we pray are, feed us with the body and blood of Jesus. Our Thanksgiving prayer is we thank you for the spiritual food that you gave us and the body and blood. You know, so that's a kind of Luther Calvin. You're sort of working through these things. Um, so even our own prayer book, I think, reflects some of the tensions that are present in the Eucharistic agreements between Calvin and Luther. We should end. Okay. We can stay for questions afterwards. We'll let people go to church. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. All right, bye. <laughs>